Welcome to Clear as Quantum, an Equus podcast about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we'll try to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers, I work at the University of Newcastle, and lately I've been wondering whether quantum cryptography might be able to help prevent students cheating on end-of-semester exams. I am Yasmin Svenla from Queensland, and I've been thinking a lot about how water moves, and it turns out it's really hard. I'm Liz Bridge, and I'm also from Queensland, and recently I've been finding quantum engineers to work in the growing quantum computing sector. Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, funded by the Australian Research Council. In this podcast series, we're talking with a range of researchers working in universities across Australia. Today, we have Helena Rubenstein Dunlop with us. She is a professor at UQ, a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science, and an officer of the Order of Australia, which is the Queen's Honour List for people who have demonstrated extraordinary service to society. And honestly, it's true. Her contributions to science span this vast area that encompasses physics, but also biology and neuroscience. And this is all great for humanity, but not really for me as a person, because I have no idea where to start. I wrote this on my notepad. Zebrafish, nuclear physics, chaos, tunneling. And then there's an eclogue that connects them, and it says tweezers. So I'm going to need some help here. So Helena, can you please tell us um, maybe what a tweezer is, and then from there, how about we just see how far we get into this list. Thank you so much, Yasmin. The fascination for me in physics is light-matter interaction. And what tweezers are, it's a um, principle in which you're using highly focused laser light to maneuver things around. Can you imagine that you have a splinter in your hand and you take mechanical tweezers and you pull it out? And when the splinter gets very, very small, all of a sudden you cannot pull it out because you cannot see it. So then you can instead use light to grab it and then pull it and move it away. So what we are talking about is using the laser beam to exert a force on matter. Uh, the matter cannot be very big. Uh, because otherwise the force would be too small to do anything to it. But And um, you are grabbing those particles or whatever objects into the most intense part of the beam. And then if you move the beam around, you can move your object around. So that's what optical tweezers is. And you can look at basic physics doing this. And you can also look at enormous amount of applications. But I think what is most fascinating for me about optical tweezers is how it all came about. And it came about by Arthur Ashkin, who eventually very, very late in his life got Nobel Prize for optical tweezers, especially of the use in biology, uh, because he was interested in trapping atoms. And so very long time he has been trying to think of ways of cooling and trapping atoms. As you know, I do it as well. But anyway, he was trying to do this and it proved quite difficult. So in order to convince himself that the idea wasn't that stupid, he said, 
Maybe we can do trapping on slightly bigger scale and so investigate the forces that are at play so that we'll understand how to then translate it to trapping and cooling atoms. And so he went to these tiny, tiny particles, which were much, much bigger than an atom. They were about a few microns in size. And he used a highly focused laser light to actually trap them. So that's how it all started. It sounds really cool. And it's making my mind picture various scenes from science fiction where there's alien spaceships with tractor beams that are sucking people off a planet, pulling cars off the surface of the planet up into a spaceship. It sounds like it's the same idea, but a smaller scale. Yes, it's absolutely the same idea. And it's much, much smaller scale because it's on micron scale rather than, you know, big things. But uh, it's exactly that idea. You are looking at the conservation of energy and momentum for light. The easiest way of understanding what's happening in optical tweezers is actually using the uh, optical physics to explain it. So if you imagine that you have a particle which is denser than the surrounding and you come with laser light towards it, the light will bend within it. And then when it comes out of the particle, it will bend again. And so energy has to be conserved and momentum has to be conserved. So there is momentum being transferred to the particle. So it's moving. So that's how it all works. So it's really rather simple physical principle, but very beautiful one. Yeah, so it's really actually the force that in case of normal people's tweezers, <laughs> everyday tweezers, the force that will be exerted just by your hand on the two sides of the tweezers is basically just replaced by by the force of light. Yes. The, the force is it's basically the same force as the one that's around us all the time, right? I guess we experience some radiation pressure just at any point in time. Absolutely. Uh, but it's not as localized. Well, no, it's not a question of it's not being localized. It's a question of it being very, very small. We all know that if I go out onto the street during sunny day and the sun is coming at me, I will be hot. So there is transfer of energy. That's easy, right? Because we all have felt it. But if I'm standing in the sunny day outside, if the light has momentum, it should be pushing me backwards. It's not happening. But it has to do with the fact not that radiation pressure is not present or the transfer of momentum is not there or that the light doesn't have momentum. But it's just a question of the fact that momentum is so small. And I'm huge, comparatively speaking. So that momentum which is pushing me is not felt by me. But, you know, already in 19th century, Kepler has seen radiation pressure when he was observing the tails of the comets. Hmm. And he could see that they were bending away from the sun. And that was the radiation pressure which was pulling those tails of the comets away. And why it was possible was because the tails of the comets are made out of tiny, 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 tiny particles on which this radiation pressure meant measurable, observable thing, oh. right? Because, you know, when you irradiate something with, with light, you have several forces acting. There is absorption, there is scattering. And if absorption is stronger than scattering, then those things won't be observable, mm. right? 
And also, really, laser light carries a lot of energy, as we said. And depending on its color, you know, the shorter the wavelength, the more the energy. But also, if I have enormous amount of power in my laser, like gigawatts or whatever, to pull your car off, then I'm also, it's quite possible that, that those rays will be absorbed by the car and just, we would burn them. Uh. <laughs> well, that also happens in science fiction, so I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> so we all know how much easier it is to get sunburnt than it is to get sucked up by the sun, don't we? So I think we can appreciate <laughs> Yes, that's right. <laughs> exactly. I like that. Yes. What is remarkable about optical tweezers is, well, I'm in love with optical tweezers, so probably a lot of stuff is remarkable for me. But uh, I think that what's remarkable with this piece of science is that although it's still developing as far as understanding of physics of the phenomena is concerned, it has also found already enormous number of applications. And they are, you know, you mentioned zebrafish. We use our optical tweezers in manipulating certain parts of zebrafish to look at a nervous system of zebrafish. Optical tweezers, shortly after they have been discovered, have been used in biology in manipulating yeast cells. They are used in studies of DNA, molecular machines. And, in fact, we are using them for something that Lachlan will like, optically driven micro-machines. Mm. So they are micro but they're driven by light. Lachlan's only love is diamonds, so... <laughs> I'm sorry, but you were off. <laughs> so there was um, a group just before uh, Thomas Voltz's group at Macquarie who were doing uh, optical tweezers on invisentes in diamond. <sighs> and it was a very clever idea, actually, because they were enhancing the forces uh, with which you can trap stuff by using resonant light, uh, which was resonant with the uh, invisentes in, in diamond. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Alina, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the about the zebrafish? So I read somewhere that you were trying to look at, um, it was sort of a neuroscience collaboration, and I would love to know more about that, actually. So uh, we have a project with Ethan Scott, Queensland Brain Institute. He's a biologist who is interested in a nervous system of zebrafish. So first of all, the question why you bother study nervous system of zebrafish has to do with the fact that zebrafish is a fantastic model of mammalian brain. But zebrafish is a little bit stupid and it has a little bit of small brain. So it's comfortable to study. So if you want to study human brain, it's huge. And so number of neurons that you are dealing with is, is incredibly large. If you go to zebrafish, that number goes down dramatically. But at the bottom of it all is the fact that if you can understand zebrafish brain function, that can be translated into large mammalian brain. Okay. So then what Ethan was interested in was to study vestibular system in zebrafish. What is vestibular system? Vestibular system is the system that controls balance and hearing. So the things that are responsible for our 
balance system and hearing system are stones which are called otoliths which are sitting in our ears and they are attached to the sides of our ears by little hairs, very tiny hairs. And on each side we have two stones which are predominantly responsible for balance and two which are responsible for hearing. And now if you disturb those stones, if they are not working properly, you will have vertigo. Mm. And so what they wanted to understand is if you expose fish to certain stimulus, how does the signal propagate within the brain between the different neurons, how it goes from the understanding that something is happening to actually reading it out. This is neuronal connectivity that you want to study. Now, you might wonder why it is important. So, there is a lot of evidence that certain conditions have to do with the fact that neuronal connectivity is ruptured somewhere or insufficient somewhere. And so, for example, that could be cause of dementia or Alzheimer and few things like that. So the first question is to understand how the signal propagates to the brain. And the other one is how many of the neurons can I turn off for the signal still to propagate? How many can I sacrifice connectivity with and still have the signal going through? So we had a student, very clever student, who is now working at QBI, Itia Favre-Bull. The project started actually with her using our knowledge of light-matter interaction to construct optical fields that Ethan could use for looking at optogenetics. And we realized that with optical tweezers, what we could do is to cheat the fish that its balance system has been disturbed and see how it reacts. So what we did is to put the optical force that we were talking about of highly focused laser beam onto one stone and wiggle it with optical force. (laughs) So with optical tweezers, we could measure what sort of forces we were applying to these particular stones. And using a scanning light microscopy, we could follow the brain connectivity and see how the signal change depending which stone we are interrogating. And you might say, were you the first to do it? Well, People have been studying balance system in zebrafish in different ways. So, for example, what they did is to have a, a special contraption in which they put the fish under the microscope and shook the whole fish. <laughs> but in many ways, I would say that our method was really quite clever, if I may say so, because when you are moving the whole fish, you are not necessarily only interacting with the balance system. While when you are putting optical force onto the stones, you are only interacting with the balance system and the rest of the fish is stable. It doesn't move at all. So therefore, it's a direct way of looking at those signals. And so that's what Itia developed and it worked very well. And she also developed very nice method together with Michael Taylor and us for studying the hearing system in zebrafish and also looking at the brain connectivity. So combination of many methods which led us to understanding of the problem probably. That's fantastic, Kalina. It makes me think about how actually the fact that 
light has only such a weak force. It's so kind of small and precise. It's a tweezer, not a sledgehammer or not a, I don't know, not a crane. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the unfortunate thing is that you can't beam people up into spacecrafts, but... <sighs> Uh, the fact that it is so weak and unintrusive and precise, yeah, is really an advantage. I'm not quite sure if it's also an optical tweezer, but I know in cancer research they use, um, uh, they've been looking for a long time at just exciting tiny gold particles, for example, uh, in vitro to uh, really locally kind of attack cancerous tissue. Yeah. And so I guess that's also quite similar. It's really, you can apply such a localized force, which must be such an extremely useful thing in medicine and in neuroscience and all of those very fragile yeah. <laughs> objects. So in fact, uh, you can have gold nanoparticles acting in optical tweezers, put them into living cells and use them, trap them and use them as local heaters. Because with gold nanoparticles, there is a lot of absorption as well. So they get very hot. They actually get incredibly hot. And so if you want for some reason to burn a cell, like you would want to burn uh, say cancer cell, you could use this local heating to do that. Right. I have a really obvious question, I suppose. Because it's optical forces, whatever you're dealing with needs to be at least a little bit transparent. I'm imagining these zebrafish, if you're going to be dealing with parts of their ear and their brain, they're probably transparent enough to light. Do I need to worry about my own ears or are they <laughs> opaque enough? Do they block the light? They, uh, I would burn you rather than I would see anything. Uh, <laughs> But it is a, it is I'm a, sensing a theme. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that, uh, so I should add that the zebrafish that we are dealing with is genetically modified. So it is even more transparent than it would be otherwise. So the embryo of zebrafish is quite transparent. But you know, what is transparent varies depending what sort of light you're using with it. So we are making sure when we are working with this uh, genetically modified zebrafish, which is quite transparent, to use the laser light of the wavelength that is absorbed very minimally by the tissue. Fantastic. And can I maybe quickly um, ask for a little extra context? When you say micro-machine, I said molecular motors. Okay. Yeah. Is it like a tiny man-made molecule that can sort of move around like a little robot? Or mm. that's what I, I imagine it. Okay. Okay. So, uh, no. What I was... <laughs> yes and no, I should say. So, what I had in mind is molecular motors that we have in our system. So, kinesin is a, an example of molecular motor. And so people want to understand how those molecular motors work. And as you know, mechanical laws of Newton do not work very well on tiniest scale. So to understand how molecular motors work, it is important to be able to study them in their own environment. So one way of studying kinesin, for example, was early on using optical tweezers was that uh, people took plastic bead and attached it to one end of the motor and then looked how the motor was traveling along the tubulars in the cell and they could do it by measuring how it wiggled in the optical trap. For example, the smallest step that they were able to detect was about five angstrom, 
5 times 10 to minus 10, right? They could look at it because if I have my particle trapped in optical trap, it sits at a particular place in the equilibrium. But as soon as it's pulled, it comes out of that equilibrium a little bit. And if I can measure it, then I can tell you how much it has moved. So you weren't trapping kinesin in itself because it's too small, but you were trapping something that the kinesin was attached to. So that's molecular motor. But when you are talking about micro machines, that's something else. So what I had in mind when I was talking about micro machines is that Everything that I was telling you about optical twists up to now had to do with transfer of linear momentum of light. But you can also transfer angular momentum of light. And angular momentum of light comes in two flavors. It can be orbital angular momentum or it can be spin angular momentum. And so if I have spin angular momentums, then when it is impinging on a particle that can react to it, you need a special particle, then you can transfer the spin angular momentum, so circular momentum, to the particle. And because you have to conserve the momentum, the particle has to answer. So it spins in opposite sense. And that's doable. And that we, we were actually the first to do it. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, you can also use orbital angular momentum. And orbital angular momentum, it's a, it's a quite an interesting uh, animal. So you can construct orbital angular momentum light. They are called either vortex beams or Gauss-Laguerre beams of light. And you can construct them with carrying a certain number of, of orbital angular momentum per photon. The number can be very high. So you can... By using spatial light modulators or static holograms, you can produce orbital angular momentum of very high, it's called charge. And so we can construct those beams of light and we can put them onto certain structures, for example, cogs of a machine, and we can turn the cogs by using only transfer of orbital angular momentum. And that's what we have done as well. But to go back to molecular motors, what we also can do with all these sophisticated things like transfer of linear and angular momentum of light, we can build pretend molecular motors. So it will mimic, it will be biomimic construction of a molecular motor on which I will use my optical light to study their properties. <laughs> that is just so cool. So Helena, mm -hmm. you've been involved in loads of different really cool experiments spanning across different areas of physics. I wanted to ask you, how did you get into physics? So let's say when you were at high school, how did you decide what subject you wanted to study? Well, that's always an interesting question, isn't it? So A, I had very good teacher of physics when I was in high school. B, physics came easy. I found it incredibly interesting. And then I suppose that understanding it wasn't that very difficult. C, I had a mother who was physicist as well. Okay. D, I didn't want to study physics. Okay, so how does this all gel together? So I finished high school and um, I thought I had great time at high school and I, I really loved physics and maths, but I didn't want to do it. So I wanted to study humanities. I want Actually, I wanted to study history of music, of all things. I didn't want to play because I knew I wasn't good enough, <laughs> but I wanted to... Uh, 
but I wanted to study history of music. And you know, just like any high school student, you have to put your preferences down. And in those days, we had entrance exams to the university. And so I said to my mom that I'm going for history of music. And my mom looked at me and she said, hmm, you really want to do history of music? Maybe you could do something that would give you some sort of profession first. <laughs> and then you can do music as a hobby. And I thought, what an awful thing to say <laughs> to your daughter. Uh, no, I didn't think that. But, uh, but then I thought... I thought, uh, what is it I want to do, really? Well, I can show her that I can do anything. So that was just being uh, against your mother. I thought, okay, well, I will study mathematics, but because I loved maths as well. But I happened to have an older brother who was incredibly clever, and his sister, that is me, thought that he was so much cleverer than her that she had hard time. <laughs> so he was studying mathematics. So I thought, no, I can't compete with him. So what can I do? No engineering. That didn't occur to me. <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, let's start physics and see how it goes. So this is how I started physics. And are you still just trialing out, Helena, or do you think you've chosen now? <laughs> Funny that you would ask that. You know, when I was doing my PhD, when I was about at the place where Yasmin is now, and my mom was visiting, I said to her, I'm all doing it for you, not for me. But it's not true. I have chosen. I think I like it. I like it. I think it's a good choice. I like it. But uh, I think that um, it took me a little while to actually decide which parts of physics really were grabbing me. And maybe I was just lucky to find the things that, that happened to be that interesting. But it has been good fun. I love it. Isn't that all that matters in the end? Mm. Well, enjoying it is probably the most important thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Alina, there's a question we've been asking everyone because it's a podcast and we can't see, we can only hear. Do you have a sound that you associate with quantum? Okay, I do, but you will be very surprised. It's a sound of music uh, written by Avo Pet, which is called Fur Il Elena or Alina. And it's actually very, very sad sound of music that is being played, but fabulously beautiful. And that makes me think of how quantum should sound. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good answer. Am I correct, Helena, in saying that you were the first woman in Australia to be awarded a professorship of physics? Yep. What a joke. What a joke. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> yeah, well... I'm very proud to report, Helena, I'm now working at the University of Newcastle, and you'll be delighted to hear that the physics faculty at the University of Newcastle is 50-50 male wow. female. Bravo. Great. Great. So that represents at least some change in a positive direction, I think. Ah, uh, yeah. No, I, I have to say that, I mean, I was critical to me achieving it, being first woman getting professorship in physics in Australia. But uh, I think that since then, a lot of things have changed. I mean, we are surrounded by fantastically capable women who are professors of physics today all over the country. And it is a big change. Hmm. But why I said it was a joke was that it's not an ancient history when I got my professorship, you know? Uh -huh. yeah. So things are not changing fast enough. Exactly. But they are changing yeah. 
Helena, I think you have also done some work in actually contributing to that change. Is that right? Well, also increasing diversity, I think, maybe on a broader level as well. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? So Yes, that's true. I have done a little bit of work in that area. And it started really at UQ when I, together with my incredibly, incredibly clever PhD student, a woman, Ambrin Thomas, decided to start a popular science program for schools. And that was meant for schools and for girls at schools. So that, you know, that this proportion between boys and girls taking physics was quite big at Australian schools. So we wanted to bridge that gap and show the girls what it really means to be in science. We ran uh, experimental uh, labs for them and then show them how much fun you can have. We probably had, um, I don't know, up to 1,500 pupils per year coming and seeing us. And wow. whether we changed proportions, I cannot tell you. I don't have numbers. But it was very nice program. And uh, also, I am uh, a chair of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee of SPIE, the Optics and Photonics Organization in the US, which is trying to change the balance of not only gender, but religion, culture, sexuality. And we have programs that enable participation of these still minority groups in meetings and stipends uh, for them to be able to study uh, further, etc. I'm also uh, trying to drive a, a program of equity, diversity and inclusion at the Australian Academy of Science. Uh, and you might know that the Australian Academy of Science has produced a uh, Women in Science report, which is looking at all those problems. So it was predominantly gender, but now it's becoming much broader. It started a big uh, consortium of women who can uh, join the consortium and exchange ideas, not only in EDI space, but also in professional space. And I think that that consortium now has a uh, few thousand women around Australia from all areas of science. So it's all STEM. And so these are the programs that we sort of develop. Yeah, that's really good to hear. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> Helena, you shine your light wherever you go. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Helena. Thank you to listeners for listening. Uh, I hope that we've been able to make a few things as clear as quantum or maybe even clearer. <laughs> This is actually the last episode of season one of Clear as Quantum. But we still want to hear your quantum questions. We've been receiving a number of these. So send yours to engage at equus.org. That's E-N-G-A-G-E at E-Q-U-S dot org. Because we have a special bonus episode planned, dedicated to answering listener questions. Not only that, but another couple of bonus episodes are already in the pipeline. So, although you won't be able to join us for a regular scheduled Clear as Quantum episode next week, keep an eye out for upcoming bonus content wherever you get your podcasts. Share it with your friends. And, while you're waiting for bonus episodes to drop, remember to keep your mind open but not so open that your brains fall out. Mm -hmm.